nature has 3.8 billion years of evolution. So that's like 3.8 billion years of R&D that we could have as a library at our fingertips. What we're looking at is the best of the best that's around us. It's worth looking at to have as our mentors. Welcome to Innovational Correctness, a podcast all about innovation and transformation, hosted by David Luna, author, keynote speaker, and founder of Gamma Digital and Beyond. David and his guests discuss real-world practical advice on how to best harness the creativity of your employees and go from idea to product, giving you unique perspectives and insights into their success, all while separating hype from reality and replacing bullshit bingo with common sense. Let's jump right in to the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Innovational Correctness Podcast. In this episode, we talk about the best innovator on the planet, bar none, nature, and how we can learn and apply its ingenious solutions to solve some of the most challenging problems we humans face. We also explore some fascinating examples from the animal and insect kingdom and see how successful companies have applied these nature-inspired designs into their products. And fun fact, by the way, even though I studied business, I've always had an interest in this area and even wanted to do a PhD that looked at various strategies of different species in nature and tried to develop new strategies for companies and apply those examples. My guest today is Jamie Dwyer. Jamie Dwyer is a biomimicry research and design principal for Biomimicry 3.8. She's also a certified biomimicry professional, having earned her master's of science in biomimicry after earning degrees in biology and architecture, two seemingly very divergent fields that are actually perfectly suited through the practice of biomimicry. As a project manager and lead researcher for Biomimicry 3.8, Jamie facilitates biomimicry in the built environment. What does that mean? Well, she works to transform the design framework by helping designers apply biological intelligence derived from nature's forms, processes, and systems. In addition, Jamie has served as a biologist at the design table for major clients like Kimberly-Clark, Jacobs Engineering, and many others. She also teaches biomimicry courses and workshops in San Francisco and Montana and has been a featured speaker at numerous events. So what are we going to talk about in this episode? Well, what biomimicry and biomedics actually is, the best innovator on the planet, nature, and what makes us humans more like apprentices than masters, some fascinating biomimicry examples and applications, how companies can apply principles from nature to solve some of their most challenging problems, concrete biomimicry projects, and what types of results results one can expect, a few misconceptions and overhyped areas of biomimicry, and her top three recommendations for companies wanting to better leverage biomimicry in their products, and so much more. Let's go meet Jamie. So uh, welcome uh, to the podcast, Jamie. Thank you. Do you want to briefly introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. So my name's Jamie Dwyer, and I currently live in Montana in the United States. Uh, my background is in biology and in architecture, and those two bits of education then led me to this career in biomimicry. So that's a little bit of my work history. So before we start using technical terms, would you mind explaining the term biomimicry and biomimetics and how that differs from bionics? I assume most listeners haven't heard of the term before. 
Sure. Biomimicry is learning from and then emulating nature. It could be forms, processes, or systems. And that emulation is all geared towards creating a more sustainable design. As far as I know, biomimicry and biomimetics is those are interchangeable words. Uh, you know, of course, there might be some people who have a more nuanced definition of one or the other and sort of separate them out. But I have heard people use those two words interchangeably. As far as bionics, I am not an expert in bionics, but I would consider that to be a, I guess, subcategory of biomimicry. It's very specific, uh, more around emulating nature in electronics. So you sort of, I mean, you if you look up bionics, you would see, you know, robotic hands and stuff like that. So even if the term biomimicry is relatively new, it seems we humans have always been fascinated by nature. If I just take flying, for instance, we tried to imitate birds. So when did we humans start imitating nature? Is there a record of that? You know, I would say that humans probably first started imitating nature before we had any real records. I mean, all that would take would be for, you know, some caveman human to see what other animals are eating and then copy that. You know, that maybe that would be a, a first instance. But as we do biomimicry now, we try to be really intentional. It's a proactive practice of looking to nature um, to solve problems. What are some examples or applications of biomimicry besides the famous example such as Velcro or spider silk? Can you give us some examples that maybe are lesser known? Well, you've got some smaller scale things. So Velcro, like a product or spider silk. There's a large scale example, uh, kind of a whole different level there. The Eastgate building, which is a building in Zimbabwe designed by Mick Pierce. And it's a pretty cool building. I've never been there myself, but many case studies and research have been done on it. And Mick Pierce learned about how termites in their termite mounds in Zimbabwe and in other countries do ventilation. And so his ventilation system, he's got a passive ventilation system in the Eastgate building that is mimicking what he learned from termite mounds. So part of what he looked at was, um, so these termites are farmers and the farm, I guess, rooms, you might call them, are underground. And then there are systems of uh, basically chimneys. And then they open and close you know, different, different chimneys to then control the temperature and the humidity inside their farming areas. I could easily see some companies saying, well, that's easy enough. Let's just uh, take a species or an organism and try to copy or emulate what they're doing and apply it to our problem that we're trying to solve. But almost always, it's not that easy. And I would assume that the abstraction level needed to apply these and extract these principles to a concrete problem can get quite complex. So how would a, say, a company that's trying to produce more efficient turbines, how would they start and where would they look? I mean, nature is, is very huge and complex. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you just mentioned, you know, um, one of the issues is the scale. So with the Eastgate building and uh, mimicking the termites, you know, that that's a different scale. And in some cases that can be enlarged and still work, but you can imagine there are other strategies that are very dependent upon the scale that they happen in nature. Like, for example, if you're moving water uh, in a tree through capillary action, that can't 
be indefinitely enlarged and still work? So it's a really good question. And the example that you mentioned, the turbines, is actually an interesting example that already has a bit of a biomimicry story. So there is a company called Whale Power that has created a technology based off whale turbicles. And I guess that's a good example for me to talk about how someone or a company would go about the process of biomimicry. So there, we talk about there being kind of two methods of doing, or I guess two approaches of doing biomimicry. So one of them would actually be this case study of whale power, this turbicle technology. So that is going from biology to design. In this particular case, Dr. Frank Fish, who happens to be an expert in fluid dynamics, noticed what he thought was an error in this figurine of a humpback whale. The bumps or turbicles on the whale flipper weren't where he expected them to be based on his understanding of current fluid dynamics and you know how, how a whale would be moving through the water and be the most dynamic. And so he spent years and years studying the whale flipper and in wind turbines and creating models and really finding out the mechanics of what was happening. And then he took what he learned and applied it to wind turbines and got great benefits, decreased noise and increased the generation energy generation across a greater range of wind speeds. So the wind turbine really is becoming more efficient. So this was all a, an example of starting from inspiration from nature, kind of a, oh, aha, I I discovered something and and I want to learn about it and then apply it to a design or a category or a industry where that might make sense. And you can even think of, okay, what other industries would benefit from this, you know, understanding of fluid dynamics that we learned from the whale turbicle, you know, so there might be other places where it could be applied. So this is sort of a biology, starting with biology and then and, and then transporting it to design. And then the other way to go about doing biomimicry is what we call challenge to biology. So starting with a company and they have a problem and then being very intentional on, you know, honing that question down of like, what is it that we want this, uh, you know, maybe it's a product, what we want this product to do, like, you know, take away my assumptions of what I think the end result is going to be, but really, what do I want this product to do? And then I take that question and go look and see what I can find in nature. And Biomimicry 3.8, the company that I work for has been, you know, we've spent 20 years honing that process of how to then learn from the natural mentor and discover the strategy or the mechanism exactly what's happening there and then um, bringing that to the design process to change the design and you know come up with something new or at least improved um, that solves the original challenge so uh, kind of two different ways of um, coming towards biomimicry the biomimicry process Absolutely fascinating. I always found the best inventor in the world, nature, is so full of examples that we just need to tap into. Right. So there, there's a lot of things I'd like to ask you, and we could go down many rabbit holes. So what you kind of described about honing the the problem or the challenge sounds very much like design thinking, where you'd kind of frame your design challenge. How do we improve wind turbines by 50% using nature or using a principle out of nature? Does that use design thinking principles? Definitely. The process that we go through to 
to bring biomimicry to a design process. It's not it's not outside of design thinking. It sort of just adds depth to various steps of a good design process. If we break this down even further, is there a systematic way of applying these principles from nature? And I thought about this without knowing how you guys approach it from my experience is that something on a macroscopic level can behave very differently or look very differently than on a microscopic or even nano level. And this kind of reminds me of Alan Watts where he talks about different perspective where there is no black or white or no good or bad. There's just different perspectives and you have different viewpoints. So if you take something, say, for instance, at a microscopic level, so look at a picture that might like look like a bunch of dots. But if you look at under the naked eye, that looks like an actual picture. And if you look at something from a telescope, it looks very different. And then you could ask, okay, well, what's the right magnification? There isn't one. If I take, for instance, an ant colony with the naked eye, it looks like chaos. But at another level, it could be complete harmony. It could look very orderly from another view. So is there a systematic way of applying these principles and extracting these principles from nature? So there's definitely a, a process that Biomimicry 3.8 and, and, and partners that we've been working with have have developed and are continue to hone, continuing to hone that help us be intentional and not missteps and um, and and do a thorough job. That being said, I wanted to talk about a couple of things that came to mind as you were talking and and that interesting quote about it's all about the perspective. So yes, the macro and the micro scale things work differently. I mean, at a water, for example, at a at a large scale, you know, a body of water versus looking at a molecule of water and how it interacts with uh, another chemical or or another water molecule, so at a, a chemistry level. So we definitely, I mean, part of it is getting the right expert to understand the natural world at the right scale. So, uh, you know, from an evolutionary biologist who is going to talk about how species are interacting and interacting with the environment and with each other, or to a chemist. And, you know, we have, uh, you know, we have a chemist on staff, and we have people who are looking at nature at a more ecological level, you know, ecosystem services and the outputs from an ecosystem as a whole. And so we definitely are looking at the appropriate scale. And besides scale, we're also looking at nature on the level of if it's a form that we're looking at. So like a three-dimensional shape, like you mentioned, um, Velcro. So the the hooks and how it hook, you know, and the, what the other side looks like and how the hooks hook to each other or could be process. So, uh, you know, photosynthesis or how light is created in a, in a bug or could be a systems level as well. So how an ecosystem, all the different species, what they're just doing on their, you know, daily living then creates an ecosystem that helps us manage flood water. So we're looking also at all of those different scales. But I mean, I have to say doing biomimicry research is so fun because it is about the perspective, as you mentioned. And 
you know, say we have a challenge from a company and it has to do with managing excess water. Okay, so yeah, we're going to look at that perspective, that context of what are some other creatures that live in a place that has um, too much water. But then we might also look at it from the opposite side of that coin, the opposite perspective. How about the creatures that live in a place where water is very scarce and every drop of water is like hard fought for or, you know, they have to, uh, I don't know, have some special material or uh, do something special in order to get every drop of water. And so that's also a valid context environmental system to look in. So it, it is it is hard to describe doing biomimicry to people because, it, I don't know, it can seem so all over the board. Someone will ask, oh, you know, what, what's biomimicry? And I'm like, well, it's from chemistry to, you know, master planning. So it can be anything and everything. So it is, it does make it hard to describe. But we have worked hard as a company to hone down how we do biomimicry and creating tools for other people to do biomimicry as well. And and even a whole like taxonomy of a function. I don't think I've mentioned function yet, but function is really the, the bridge between biology and design. And when I talked earlier about sort of honing down the design question of like, what do you want your project or, you know, your, your, what do you want your design to do? And you asked also the good design process and, you know, getting to the function as part of that good design process. And that really is the tool that we use to move back and forth between biology and design. That's what I personally find very fascinating and intriguing about nature. You see the solutions and you're like, wow, that's just so simple, so elegant. But then if you dig deeper and look at how the solution is actually created, it's actually pretty complex. But nature has a solution and answer to everything. And that's what I found so fascinating about biomimicry. I agree. And, you know, one of the benefits of using biomimicry in a design process is that humans a lot, a lot of times humans will get stuck. And when we do a, when we are trying to invent a better, you know, something, it's almost like we take the original version and try to improve upon it. And one of the great benefits of using nature as a library of mentors that we can learn from is that plants provide a very deli- different solution set than insects or than mammals or you know bacteria or you know so there is such a wide variety of very different solutions so that just gives us such a, I mean, it's such a gift for us to be able to look at all of these different species that are doing things differently. And yes, sometimes species that are unrelated will do, will have a similar mechanism, a similar strategy. And that also is worth knowing that, you know, a, 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 that a bird and an insect have evolved to have, you know, similar ways of flying, you know, and there are differences, obviously, but there are some similarities and in, in both of those things are worth learning from. This reminds me of another observation, and I believe also Alan Watts said this in in some form, where he said the relationship in nature is actually transactional. So neither is the organism being pushed around by the environment, nor is the environment being pushed around by the organism. So the relationship itself is transactional. 
You know, similar like there's nobody buying if there's nobody selling in economics or there's no crest without a trough. And I think we humans tend to miss this symbiotic relationship, this transactional relationship, and just see certain aspects of it. Okay, this is black, this is white, this is good, this is bad. And I think we we do nature a, a huge disservice and just tend to overlook a lot of these interesting aspects that could solve a lot of challenging problems that we have. But, you know, that's just another observation that I just came up with. So what are some of the misconceptions people have about biomimicry? Well, one of the misconceptions that people sometimes ask me about is that they think biomimicry is all about using creatures to do the task that's for us. And so for a lot of folks, that's a a negative impression that, you know, they imagine, I don't know, like that we've got spiders all, you know, producing silk for us, and we're using it for something or, uh, you know, something like that. But, you know, so that's a misconception about biomimicry. Biomimicry really is about learning, and then applying, you know, those design lessons. Um, Another misconception is that that the animal or, you know, whatever this creature is has to might, like has the same intent as humans. And so then it seems, it might seem impossible to find an animal that's doing something for the same intention as what we might be using it for. Um, And so, you know, that, that reason exactly is why we use function to bridge between biology and design. It doesn't necessarily matter what the uh, intent is. I mean, likely this creature is just trying to stay alive. And so um, over, you know, evolutionary time, has evolved this different, you know, physical attribute or a behavior or, you know, something that then matches the the system and, and provides it some benefits. So it doesn't have to be, we don't have to understand any sort of intent from the animal. Um, oh, another misconception is that um, people think that it's going to be, you know, like this iconic creature that then gets mimicked in all aspects. But of course, when you have a project that's as complex as a building, you know, you're not going to mimic just one thing. You might mimic a, a lot of things. You might mimic, you know, the Eastgate building. You might mimic the ventilation system from one creature and, you know, a shading technology from the cactus, which McPierce did use on the Eastgate building. And then, you know, in another building, maybe they have other challenges as well. And they look to other creatures that are helping, that are uh, providing a, a mentor and knowledge for a, a different challenge. Yeah, I think most people tend to forget that the animals or any species or organisms live within a certain context, live within a certain environment, and those attack or defense strategies make sense in that environment. If I take the Naibian water beetle, for instance, that lives in the desert where water is very scarce, but it can basically extract water out of thin air, literally, that makes sense in that environment. But if it would live in the ocean, for example, water is abundant. That wouldn't make any sense. So we tend to often over-rely on examples or rely on what you said, the iconic species or the iconic animal that we're going to use for everything. Yeah. When I've been working with students, they definitely get caught up with, you know, they are mimicking the beetle. And so then they might try to force 
you know, some of the strategies from the beetle <clears throat> to fit with everything in their building. But of course, that doesn't make sense. You know, it's what the, what they're trying to produce as a design is much more complicated. And so then they have the opportunity. I mean, it's a great opportunity to then look at other species and how other species are doing the next portion of the challenge that they need to work on. Yeah, as a classical example of Maslow's hammer over the over-reliance on, say, a tool. So if I have a hammer and never use one, everything looks like a nail, and that's okay to a certain extent. <laughs> but sometimes I have to get over this, okay, one principle doesn't apply to everything. So yeah, I, I totally get that. I think we're all kind of victims of that when we first see a framework, uh, a principle, then we like to apply it to everything. Yeah. So are there maybe species, plants, etc., or organisms or properties in nature that lend itself better to biomimicry or can one even say that? You know, I think right now, as far as species that are lending themselves to biomimicry, we're really just limited by what species have been researched. So there are a lot of species out there that we don't know anything about. And that's kind of the limitation with being able to use them as a mentor is we just don't know anything yet. And, uh, you know, as we as humans um, are able to understand different natural processes and see things at a smaller scale and study at a smaller scale, you know, so all of those new technologies that we might have and, you know, better scientific studies, all of that kind of allows us to then those mentors are now available to us to use and learn from. So essentially, it's a matter of cataloging more and more species and the specific attributes and, I would say, talents that these organisms have to then apply better solutions to the problems we're trying to solve. Yeah. So one principle I found particularly fascinating is permaculture. And it's very similar to what's coming up or has been coming up in the last five years, which is circular economy. So permaculture, trying to emulate nature, because we humans, we produce something with brute force, and then we kind of use it, and then it gets discarded, and there's waste. And in nature, uh, there is no waste. It's yeah. kind of transactional. Everything gets used. And trying to apply this to, you know, product development, product design, and doing something with that waste then that we create that that's still usable. So is, is that is that something you guys do as well, is try to help companies think more in circular terms, in circular economy? We do. Um, I mean, you hit it exactly right when you said that there is no waste in nature. I mean, there's no such thing as garbage. You know, the outputs from one species or from one system those then become the resources for something else. And so we definitely have done work with companies just rethinking their food web of, you know, where they're getting resources from and um, not just their internal, um, you know, production lines, but then, you know, where are they getting resources from and then where are their wastes going to? So for example, we have done work with Interface Carpet and they as a company have done some interesting work with taking, you know, waste, quote, waste resources, and turning it into material that they then use again, to the point where they have developed um, their own machine that pulls the backing off carpet and then lets them reuse it as a sort of fresh resource. Can you maybe describe or take us through a biomimicry project that you were involved with in the past and then kind of show us what type of results one can achieve by taking principles from nature and applying those? Okay, so 
uh, my background is in architecture as well as biology. So a lot of the projects that I work on are built environment projects. And uh, some of the cool projects that we're working on now are all kind of under this heading of project positive. And what we're trying to do is to look to nature at a much larger scale than some of our other biomimicry work. So we're looking at how a healthy ecosystem, how, how healthy habitats function. And, you know, there are many benefits that people get from having or being surrounded by healthy ecosystems like uh, flood management or, you know, clean air, clean water, all of those types of, of resources and benefits that we get from being in a healthy natural place. And so what we're trying to do with these up and coming built environment projects is to quantify what is actually happening happening in an ecosystem and then learning how it is happening better understanding of how you know what uh, what components are all required for uh, clean water and clean air and you know regulating stormwater those kind of benefits and so then bringing not only the design ideas, but then also those metrics to a project. So sort of changing the whole trajectory of a built environment project. And so we've been working on this on some various campuses and with um, some manufacturing companies. So that's the type of project that I end up working on. And, you know, then, of course, Biomimicry 3.8, you know, we have my coworker who is a chemist, and he's working on a whole different scale of projects. And then I have another coworker whose background is in engineering. And, you know, so then for those different scales, Biomimicry 3.8 has worked on projects that are, uh, you know, like learning about packaging. So how leaves are, you know, folded up in a little bud and then are deployed. And, um, you know, and then having that kind of um, strategy or that kind of uh, mechanism applied to rethinking their packaging or at a, a chemistry level, how nature has these really specific chemistries that are, you know, sort of the, the key to the lock and not the way that we kind of bludgeon our way through a lot of chemistry. And so to change those processes for how a chemical company creates their their chemicals instead of, you know, so in a, in a much more specific and targeted way, sort of mimicking nature. So those are the types of projects that we're, that we're working on. And what type of results do the customers generally get? Is it like, oh, it was an interesting project? It was 5% better than our traditional way of doing things? Or is it like, wow, this is groundbreaking. This saved like 20%, 30% of the cost or is 30% more efficient? What is some of the feedback you guys get in these projects? Well, I mean, in, you know, real life projects are, of course, complicated. So, you know, we've had great results where, you know, it changes the way that a master plan is for a whole project and it changes the way that the, the thinking is and the intention is for the project. So some of those results that we get are harder to measure, but they are just sort of steeped into the entire project and it has changed the way and the goals of the project. Other times it's a new product. Um, other times it is, it has been, um, you know, some patents that have come along. You know, one of the things that that could also come out of it is that nature doesn't do whatever that's challenge is. And 
you know, maybe instead of taking another 10 years to attempt to, to find a solution, we just need a whole a whole different approach. So sometimes, uh, you know, there are very specific outcomes, like there is a new product on the shelf. And sometimes it's just a whole different way of thinking that maybe doesn't really have much outcome at all on the first project, but the that design team is forever looking at design in a different way and um, just changes their company. So it, it's, you know, it's a wide variety of results that we get for sure. Yeah, that, that makes that makes total sense. So you mentioned patents just shortly. So if you I'm going to use the word steal a patent from nature, who does it belong to? So if you apply a principle or uh, see a principle in nature, apply that to your product. Uh, I, th- I think I already know the answer, but I'm just going to ask because, you know, it's it's actually stealing from nature, something that's freely available. If one would just look. But then if companies apply it, can they patent that, this principle? Well, I, you know, we had a, um, a, a student who was taking some of our biomimicry classes at one point who was a patent lawyer. Uh, I am not that much of an expert with all of those details. I do know that you can't patent what, you know, what a frog is doing. And so it has to be a step further than that. You have to you know, distill out the mechanism. And then, I mean, I think apply it to whatever your design is, or whatever your industry is in some sort of more specific way before you can patent it. That is my understanding, but that's not my area of expertise. So it's best not to patent Kermit the frog, (laughs) because he'll sue you. Exactly. Well, and, you know, in the way that we work as a company, even just then reusing those mechanisms and strategies. And so our kind of rule of thumb is that we don't then give that strategy or that uh, mechanism for how a species, um, you know, moves water or whatever it might be. So we're not going to give that same water moving strategy to another company that does the same thing as the company we were working for when we did that research. So it would at least have to be a company that is in a field that is so different that no one would even really recognize it as being the same solution because it's applied to something so different. So, you know, we're, we're not trying to do research for, you know, one food company and then turn around and then give that research to another food company. Um, Though it would be great if we had, you know, partnerships between all of those companies so that they could, you know, together sort of further the research and, um, you know, and, and I guess sort of make a larger change. But we haven't yet worked in that kind of a scenario. On the flip side, are there some things that are overhyped in biomimicry or that are overused? A lot of companies do want that iconic species to be the species that you know, that then they can talk about and it's kind of, uh, you know, puts on a, a good narrative and it looks good on pictures and that kind of thing. So we we have run into that before. For example, the sloth in some countries is that's like not, it's not very good implication. It's like implying that it's lazy or, you know, it, there's a connotation to the, the species of sloth that is all negative. And so, you know, we've been on projects where we're, we, you know, like we're, oh, the sloth is so cool and we can learn these things from there. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's like bad pu- publicity and, you know, the bad connotation. So 
Um, I think they're not that that's like being overhyped, but kind of the, the opposite. It's like, they almost expect it to be like, uh, kind of the, the model that they're going to put out there for their successes when, you know, really as the, the researchers were just trying to find the, the best examples. So it's a little bit of opposite of what you're asking, but it's kind of a, a, a funny way that it happens. Yeah, this is what I call either it's greenwashing or I call it innovation washing when people say, hey, look, we're, we're really creative. We're using design thinking and thinking just because you use a method, then you're automatically creative or by associating something with the sloth, I'm automatically lazy instead of really wanting to create a sustainable future or whatever you're trying to solve. So that's kind of what I call innovation washing, just kind of trying to say, hey, look, we're green too. We recycle our trash. So look at us, we're completely green instead of really taking it to the next level and really practicing what you preach. So I, I get that in a lot of companies as well. I think, yeah, that's much more that's much more articulate than what I was trying to say. And I, I, I think you're right that, uh, you know, some of the, the aspects of biomimicry that get overhyped is that just by saying that you're doing biomimicry um, in, in that greenwashing way, then it's like automatically doing a more sustainable and better job. And of course, it's possible to mimic something from nature and then, you know, apply it to something that's very harmful to the rest of the world. So I think there is that aspect of in biomimicry where it's automatically good because it's coming from inspiration from nature. But of course, that's in the designer's hands, how they put it to work. So yeah. This reminds me of propolis, which is a mixture of bee wax, the saliva of bees, and the tree sap resin, which bees use for multiple purposes. But one of the main reasons why beehives use this is to keep microbes out. So propolis has antiviral, antibacterial, and antifungal properties. And the interesting part is no two propolis ingredients are the same because... Again, beehives differ from each other and they always have different trees where they collect the sap, which in turn means, again, that you have no drug resistance for propolis, which makes it very, very interesting. But when we look at us humans, well, oh, we're so proud of our drugs in our pharmaceutical industry that can produce drugs in the same quality. So and to a certain extent, that makes sense and I get why, but we tend to forget the big advantages of biodiversity or creating something that's very different from each product that is produced. You know, we've run into that exact conundrum in other projects. And, you know, I, that's one of the reasons that I really love doing biomimicry is that just it changes your mind the way you think about things all the time. I mean, I've mentioned Interface before, and one of our first projects with them, it kind of took on that same aspect of how humans are so obsessed with making things so perfect. And so when they were making carpets, you know, you you can imagine as the carpet's all going by and they have quality control, it's all looking for this, you know, oh, you're looking for a little error and you want the whole thing to be as similar and the same as possible. And one of our first projects was that with them was just looking at how nature does, how coverings are in nature. And so if you imagine walking through a forest in a deciduous forest in the fall, and all the leaves are on the ground, you know, you look ahead and it's, you know, each leaf is different. And it's if you look at a, you know, a, a square of the floor covering, 
it's not exactly the same. And yet the look of it is, you, you know, you can't really tell that there's a different square that, you know, it's, it's all kind of, it, it's so different that it's the same. Um, and so that idea is one of the ideas that they then implemented in their carpet design. So with their carpet squares, having carpet that each tile is different. And yet when you lay the tiles down, it uh, you can't tell where one ends and one begins. That that reminds me so much of biodiversity and why nature heavily relies on biodiversity. We humans, we have these huge monocultures of one crop and then we're like, oh, the whole crop's destroyed because one insect specializes on this one specific crop. Well, duh, if you just use one crop instead of multiple ones and diversify your portfolio, which we humans do understand, but when it comes to nature, we want to standardize and scale everything. And a lot of companies, they have this obsession about scalability. Oh, we need the business model to be scalable. And it's all about technology. And companies tend to forget in order for something to be scalable, you need to be able to automate it. And in order to automate it, it needs to be standardized. And if something is standardized, it's more easily imitatable. But then when I ask companies, well, that's the exact opposite of what you actually want. You want to have a differentiating factor. And if you always rely on technology and always have this obsession about scalability, well, then, then you'll be like that monoculture. You know, you'll have one event which will wipe you out instead of relying on some things that aren't scalable. Things that are not scalable are mostly also hard to do. They're hard to imitate. And that's exactly what one would actually want. But again, most companies just rely on scalability. That's kind of sad to see that we humans try to, I don't know, standardize everything and, and make it conform to our views. Yeah, there's a lot, there are a lot of lessons to be learned from nature at a larger scale. One of the tools that we use doing biomimicry is that we're not just looking at how individual species or even how a single system, how we can learn from that and how that can be used as a mentor, but we also look at life's principles. So what are these common patterns of what all of the species around us are doing? And, you know, ideas like multifunctionality, and what we talked about earlier, that there is no waste, that it's circular and that some waste for something is a resource for something else and how nature is modular and nested and how, you know, so there are all of these principles that are kind of at a global level that are a good tool to pair with what we learn from individual species, because I think it kind of keeps us honest as far as the big picture of sustainability and, you know, doesn't let us get so focused on um, like a monoculture and, you know, repeating the perfect thing. But, you know, because that goes against some of these life's principles that are more about resilience and having things be distributed. And so I think the pairing of life's principles with what individual species are doing as for strategies and mechanisms is a really helpful and a holistic way to go about doing design. You just mentioned resilience, and that's important when you're in a very volatile and uncertain environment, which we live in, which we've always lived in, but believe the last 50 years was a little more planable. And then a strategy like that could make sense and, and make sense to a certain extent. But now that we all of a sudden have something that's called coronavirus, you would you would think that we've finally understood the principle of resilience and diversity. And But uh, maybe amidst this corona pandemic, is there something we can learn from viruses or bacteria? 
back to the life's principles that I was just talking about, uh, you know, just being as a, you know, I'm in the US. So as a country being able to, to be prepared for such a thing and cutting back the, the resources that way we, you know, might need in the future, because it's not the most efficient at the current time. And, you know, and so then that gets us into a, a spot where we're not prepared to, um, you know, respond to something that's new, like coronavirus. And, you know, so, uh, you know, learning from bacteria and viruses. Yes, I I have done some interesting work on uh, mutualisms. Can you briefly explain what that is to the listeners? Okay, so yeah, mutualisms are when species are working together. Um, and there are different kinds of mutualisms. There are mutualisms where both partners benefit. There are, um, you know, there are also, uh, you know, parasitism where one of the species is gaining from the other and the other one is having a, a getting a negative effect. Um, and so it's just, it's really studying the, you know, relationships between species. And so there are some species that have, that are dependent upon their host, for example. And so learning about how mutualisms happen under what conditions, kind of what are the contexts? I mean, don't necessarily want to know exactly how, you know, that crab and that sea anemone have their relationship, but I want to know maybe about what types of benefits that, you know, one is getting from the other. And is it, you know, the same kind of benefits or is it different? And part of what I learned while I was doing that research was about humans and the, you know, the bacteria that we have on us all the time. And so it's, and so it was, interesting. It was super interesting to learn about, you know, that what causes a staph infection, like that might be on us all the time. And as long as we can keep our bodies healthy, then maybe that partnership is beneficial for both of us. But as soon as something goes wrong, and you know, my skin is damaged, or my system is compromised, then you know, that partner that was a beneficial partner to me then can turn into a parasite and damage me further. Um, And so there are really interesting things that we can learn at that scale and just about relationships. You know, on that same topic, um, you know, the, the viruses and the bacteria, you know, how, I don't know, I just, I would like to learn more about, the, you know, are they getting pushed out of other locations because of something that humans are doing that is then, you know, giving them this different opening um, and spreading in a way that we haven't seen before, or cre- you know, creating this virus that we haven't seen before. So, you know, more of the context, I guess, as well. But, and then in the US, you know, maybe I also need to be studying roots and root networks on, you know, sharing resources and moving resources to where they're needed, because of course, we're having a big problem with not having ventilators where we need them necessarily and, um, and people needing supplies and things needing to be moved around the country in in a kind of organized way. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a fascinating field. I mean, there's so many avenues one could go down. There's even startups in the last few years that provide like soaps that are based on microorganism that you just put on your skin and you don't have to wash yourself with soap. And it basically creates this balance on your skin and kind of working with your gut biome and things like that. I mean, that's huge potential. And I believe even the Russians have experimented with back in the, I don't know, 60s or 70s with bacteria. Fags, I, I guess they're called, um, not as attack vectors, but as delivery systems. So they use bacteria as a delivery system for certain treatments. And they've done that um, decades ago. And I always find that fascinating. Something that's, that can be so harmful to us humans can be so useful. Yeah, that's an interesting, um, that's an interesting 
I guess maybe you would say misconception about biomimicry too. another question that we talked about earlier. Um, you know, that I think a lot of times people think that other species are, you know, good or bad, or viruses are bad, or, you know, bacteria are bad, um, but it's much more complicated than that. So, you know, the, the relationship that we have with our our own bacteria is, you know, and our gut biome and all of that, as you mentioned. Um, but then just being able to look past that, I guess, stereotype, look past that stereotype and um, see what's what that bacteria is doing and what that could be applied to. So that's the, that's the fun part of biomimicry is that, uh, you know, you learn all sorts of interesting things. Like, you know, we've done projects where we learn about ticks and most humans are not, don't like ticks. Like me. <laughs> and yet, including me, they are, I don't know, one species that I really don't like at all. And yet they do some pretty interesting things about, you know, we could learn from them about how to, you know, gather water out of the air. And I mean, a lot of interesting things that, you know, strategies and mechanism that a tick is doing that we could learn from, even though, you know, I, I guess I wouldn't even really say they're misunderstood because I don't like ticks, <laughs> but there's certainly things that we can be learning from them. Absolutely. So I believe your uh, company founder, uh, Janine, she talks about how we humans are a very young species. And this kind of quote spoke to me um, that we should be more apprentices to nature. And that's something I try to convey to companies explaining that we should actually be much more humble and start appreciating nature as like the ultimate innovator and master of innovation, uh, instead of, you know, solely focusing on technology, and that's the only solution. So my question is that I have to use, why do you think we humans believe we're always superior and above nature and try to alter, alter it and subjugate nature to our will instead of taking a more humble approach to this and appreciate nature for its beauty and for its solution that it has in store for us? Well, my guess is that humans, I, I mean, on the time scale of the earth, humans have been along for just a little blip of the time scale. And I think that our thinking of being superior comes from the fact that we are making decisions and making changes so quickly. And a lot of the evolution around us is happening at such a different time scale that it's that we haven't noticed it yet. It's, it's not as obvious. And so I, I think in the past that uh, we have really dismissed it and to the point where as humans, we have really separated ourselves from nature in many places and see ourselves as separate. And a lot of the work that we do with biomimicry, sure, part of it is to be inspired by nature and these creatures around us. But part of the work that we do is also to reconnect people to nature and I mean, I we're not going to see the creatures around us as being mentors if, first of all, they're not even there for us to see. And and so it's, you know, one of the benefits that Janine talks about is that nature has 3.8 billion years of evolution. So that's like 3.8 billion years of R&D that, you know, we could have as a library at our fingertips. Um, and so there's, in biomimicry, we're really trying to see that long time scale and what's happened over all of those billions of years as a, a benefit that, you know, what we're looking at is the best of the best that's around us. And it's, it's worth, it's worth looking at to have as our mentors. I think that was the most eloquent 
explanation I've ever heard for that question. And I think that really comes down to if I take climate change, for instance, because the timelines of our change and the results of our impact that we have in the environment are so far stretched apart that we don't make a connection between now we're blowing CO2 into the environment. Well, I'm not experiencing any huge negative impacts right now or next week or next month or next year that could take decades and so therefore i don't make the uh, connection the causality between my actions now and the results later on so the farther apart these timelines are the harder it is i think for for us humans to make that connection and i think in a sense we're wired that way but we still do have a prefrontal cortex that we can use to make some more or less rational decisions so what what are some organisms or what is your favorite organism that inspires you the most you know, the individual species changes all the time. I mean, I'm always doing research and I like to, as I say, geek out over whatever I am researching at the time. Um, I just researched some about how leaves fold and are deployed and that's amazing. And, um, but I, I do love birds. And so some of my favorite, all time favorite species are birds. I began my biology work doing bird research. So, um, Birds always have a, a, a special place that I'm always excited to see birds and, and learn about what they do and how they do it and, and their forms. And so I, th- I think your cat agrees. <laughs> Probably so. <laughs> to summarize this interview, what are your top three recommendations for companies wanting to better leverage biomimicry or leverage the principles from nature for their products and services? Well, I think that one thing is that idea of really thinking about what you want your product to do, not what you want it to be. So not thinking about what the solution is that's already in your mind, but really thinking about what you need this product to do. Sometimes it's surprising and really changes the way that you're thinking about the project in general. Um, And I mean, and that's just good design practice, but it really opens the door for then practicing biomimicry. I think the second thing I would say would be to work with uh, a scientist and, you know, biologist or, you know, maybe at whatever scale your project is, a a chemist is the the right person to be working with, but someone who is able to search nature um, with your team and kind of open those open those doors to the biology for you. And then the third the third thing would be just to, to get outside and reconnect with nature yourselves as a team. Just I mean, it, there's something so important about reconnecting and um, being able to be out there and enjoy those biophilic benefits of you know, clean air and, and letting your body slow down. And I mean, as humans, our bodies and our, you know, our eyes and, uh, you know, we, we react to being out in nature. So there is a, you know, a, a visceral response, but then also it allows you to be in a context where, you know, you can, you can start thinking about your design in a different way and seeing how things work around you in an ecosystem and, you know, maybe have your own discovery. Those are some excellent recommendations. Do you also have some books or resources people could tap into that are really interested in in this topic? 
So I would start with Janine's book, that Biomimicry Innovation Inspired by Nature. It's, I guess, 21 years old at this point, but still a great intro into learning about what biomimicry is. Um, there's a more textbook kind of book that I actually had the, um, the fortune to be part of writing, Biomimicry Resource Handbook. So that's a, a Biomimicry Resource Handbook Seed Bank of Best Practices. And that is really why walking people through the, the methodology that we practice at Biomimicry 3.8. And there are certainly many, many other books that, uh, you know, are have biomimicry in the title or in the name or, you know, biomimetics or some of these books don't even, you know, mention it like that, but really, but really are about learning from nature. So there are quite a few books out there. I'm pretty sure that we have a, a list of book resources on our website. But And then also you mentioned training. And so then um, Biomimicry 3.8, um, we have a joint venture with Arizona State University. And so then have formed the Biomimicry Center. And there is a lot of online coursework that's taught through Arizona State University. We also have one-week workshops. Um, and then, you know, our... Uh, sister organization, the Biomimicry Institute, also holds workshops, and they have a lot of resources also for teachers, uh, Biomimicry Educators Network that they have. And then they also have Ask Nature, which is a um, a database that's online that people can use to, like you would type in the function. So how does nature um, manage water? So you could type in manage water, and then um, different resources and examples and strategies and stuff would come up. And so they are continuously adding to that and getting funding to add more resources. And, you know, I know there a while back, they even added a bunch of chemistry resources. So there is a lot in there. And they also have some case studies in there. Yeah, so there's quite there's quite a bit of there are quite a, quite a few resources that are to be found. There are also even regional networks that are <clears throat> where there are people who you know live in a close geographic area to each other who are trying to get a local biomimicry movement going. So there are quite a few resources. Yeah, I'll be sure to include those resources in the show notes. And if people want to get in touch with you, how would they best contact you? Um, emailing me is really easy. Well, I guess this concludes this episode then. Thanks, Janine, for being on the podcast. It was very insightful and I could have gone on for hours, but I want to obviously be respectful of your time. So thanks again for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. I had fun discussing all of these things with you. Wow. What a fascinating interview. I could have gone on for hours. When I first started this podcast, I knew I had to do an, a podcast episode about biomimicry. And another fun fact, my diploma thesis was about the critical analysis of economic and ecological management, essentially looking at why this is not a contradiction between the two sciences, quite the contrary. And if you want to maximize profits over generations, then you have to think long range and are actually forced to create a sustainable business. And if you look up the word economics in a German dictionary, it defines it as a science of managing scarce resources. And the example I like to cite is take a fish pond. Say you have a limited number of fish in that pond, say 100. Now, if you want to make a really good profit in one day, you will fish them all out and uh, you have a good payday. But that wouldn't be sustainable over, say, a week or a month. So you take out just the right amount so they can regenerate. This is why German SMEs that are family-owned think in generations. They don't think to the next quarter, but 
that they think in generations. So how can we make profits, not 10 or 20 or 50 years, but for multiple generations to enjoy? So they're actually much more sustainable. They think very different. So they make decisions and manage the company in a very different manner that might not make the most profit right now, but on long term, it does. Now, let me ask you a rhetorical question. When you're trying to solve a very complex or one of the most pressing problem of our time, who would you trust? Someone with 200,000 years of experience or someone with 3.8 billion years of proven innovation prowess? Nature's been around for 3.8 billion years and knows very well what works and what doesn't. Not only that, it has also perfected these processes and products over billions of years. And we humans have just been around for a small blip of this. Yet we primitive apes, how nature would probably call us, that barely learned to walk yesterday are so arrogant and cocky but haven't even understood a fraction of what nature has to offer nor fully understood its ingenious design. Sure, we've developed high-speed digital fiber optic technology, the Great Wall of China, traveled to the moon, and yeah, that's quite impressive for a bunch of monkeys. But at the same time, we rape and pillage the planet like there's no tomorrow. We not only need to start reconnecting with nature, as Jamie recommended, but also take a more respectful and humble attitude towards the master of innovation by being more observant apprentices rather than masters. I also want to cite three examples of biomimicry and go into a little more detail so you can see how much potential nature has. So the first example is the Shikansen, or the 500 series of the Shikansen to be exact. And I mentioned this briefly in the episode. The Shikansen is a Japanese bullet train and used biomimicry to reduce energy consumption and noise levels, all while increasing its passenger comfort level. So the more streamlined Shinkansen 500 series has a very streamlined forefront and a few structural adaptations to significantly reduce noise resulting from aerodynamics in high-speed trains. The train not only travels much more quietly, it also travels 10% faster and uses 15% less electricity. So how did this all come about? Well, Eiji Nakatsu, who was an engineer with GR West and was also an avid birdwatcher, used his knowledge of the splashless water entry of kingfishers and silent flight of owls to decrease the sound generated by the trains. The kingfisher's beak has an almost ideal shape for such an impact. The beak is streamlined, steadily increasing in diameter from its tip to its head. This also reduces the impact as the kingfisher essentially wedges its way into the water, allowing the water to flow past the beak rather than being pushed in front of it. And trains face the same challenge, moving from low drag open air to high drag air in the tunnel. So this designer designed the forefront of the Shinkansen train based on the beak of the kingfisher. This is very similar to the uh, way of the owl's primary feathers have serrations and create small vortices instead of one single large one. Now, the bullet-shaped nose was part of the problem. Another source of the noise was the pentagraph, the protrusion that extends above the train to receive electricity from the wires above. And here, too, the engineers used models from nature, like the owl and uh, penguins as well. And the second example I want to cite is shark skin. So Speedo, a producer of swimwear, notoriously incorporated biomedics shark skin into a line of swimsuits for the 2008 
Olympics. And according to the Smithsonian, 98% of the medals at the 2008 Olympics were won by swimmers wearing the shark skin swimwear. And since then, the technology has also been banned in Olympic competition. So shark skin also has inspired antibacterial plastic surfaces that are used on door handles in hospital, restaurants, and other high traffic areas because the skin of sharks, surprisingly, don't have any parasites or bacteria due to the nature of the shark's skin. The company that produces it is called Sharklet Technology, and ships have also used shark skin from the apex predator. Lufthansa has also completed a research project back in, I believe, 2016 to develop a new coating technology that promises to cut fuel consumption. For Lufthansa's fleet alone, that would generate savings of upward of 55 million euros worth of kerosene and more than 200,000 tons of CO2 every year. And the third example I want to cite are colors. When we think of paint, we often believe it must contain some type of pigment or harmful chemicals in order for us to create color. Now, nature can actually color without any chemistry at all, simply by using structures and playing with light. And it produces colors that are much more vibrant and never fade. To sum this up, I think by being adaptable today has never been more crucial. I think we can all agree on that. And when asking how to be more adaptable, there's no better role model than nature. Nature has been successful for billions of years. And by the way, it's still around. From design, chemistry, processes, or ecosystem, nobody's better at it than the most successful and accomplished innovator on the planet. Nature uses sunlight for fuel. We humans use toxic fuels called fossil fuels. Nature uses water as its primary solvent. We humans use very toxic solvents. Nature and all its organisms understand their environment, its limits, and opportunities. Nature isn't aware of anything that's called waste. Everything is a resource that gets upcycled by another species in its ecosystem. And one thing species also don't do is shit in their own home. We humans, on the other hand, we pollute our own drinking water. And as Janine Benio said, if we humans want to stick around for the next 200,000 years and thrive while we're at it, we need to start emulating nature's sustainable model. For nature, success is keeping its offspring alive for thousands of generations. But we can't be there for the next generation, so the only way for us to achieve this is to take care of the environment, the organization, Organism is in, and in turn, the environment takes care of the offspring. Nature creates conditions where life can thrive. So let's start learning and let the healing begin, as Goodwill Hunting said. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's plenty more where that came from. Just head to our podcast website, innovationalcorrectness.com or gammabeyond.com, or just follow us on LinkedIn. There you will also find long-form articles, videos, and other podcast episodes about innovation and transformation. And if I could ask you for one small favor, it would be this. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Overcast, or the podcast app of your choice. It really helps us out by encouraging more people to find our podcast and reach hard-to-get guests. Last but not least, if you have any suggestions, for further episodes or guests that we should invite on our podcast or just have feedback, you have three options. Emailing us at info at gammabeyond.com, filling out our anonymous feedback form at innovationalcorrectness.com, or leaving us a voice message with your question or feedback so that it can be included in the podcast and all listeners can profit. Just go to innovationalcorrectness.com. Links are in the show notes. I've been your host, David Luna. Until next time.